Hello, and welcome back to One Conversation, the podcast where we believe one conversation can change a life. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to hit the follow button. Also, give us a rating. We'd love to hear from you. Enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. Today, we're going to be discussing sexual assault and more specifically the immediate and long-term effects that can come from a sexual assault. So a disclaimer here, since we will be discussing sexual assault, talking about trauma, some other types of assault, and all the repercussions that can come from experiencing that, there's so many working parts to this issue. So we're actually going to be giving a little sexual assault one-on-one before we dive into the effects that victimization can bring. So just make sure you're taking care of yourself during this episode, if this is something that you or someone you know have experienced. When we talk about sexual assault, a lot of the times we can default to saying, uh, you know, female victim, male perpetrator, but we do want to recognize here that that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. Men and children are victimized too, and women can be perpetrators. So if you catch us doing that, saying, you know, she, her as the victim, uh, that's just what is most common, but we definitely mm-hmm. want to recognize that men can be victims too. The reason it is important to talk about the impact of sexual assault is because this type of trauma is looked at as neurobiological, meaning that this trauma can affect the brain and nervous systems in the body. These impacts can be great, so it's important for us to discuss for awareness and understanding, and also knowing how to curb these effects and support survivors. Starting off with some statistics here. Every 68 seconds, another American is sexually assaulted. Just over a minute. Mm -hmm. So if we record here for 45 minutes or so, we might have about 45 people who've been sexually assaulted in the U.S., yeah. Too many. And that's why we do the work that we do. I was just going to say, that's just like a hard thing to even think about, you know, and, and put mm-hmm. the gravity of that, like, in in your mind, right? And really digest right. that that's how common it is. One out of every six American women has been the victim of an attempted or completed rape in her lifetime. And the further statistics on that is 14.8% with completed rape and 2.8% attempted. One out of six. So if you're ever in a room where there's 12 people, statistically there's two, they're women, right? The statistic is specifically about women uh, that have been the victim of an attempted or completed rape. Again, way too many. Yeah. And for men, about 3% of American men, or about one in 33 have experienced an attempted or completed rape in their lifetime. So like I was talking about, the statistic is lower, but it's still absolutely there. And that's still absolutely not okay. And they are deserving of all the services that women have access to. Yeah. And I just want to mention as well, because we know that underreporting is a really common issue for sexual Mm -hmm. assault for men and women, and I mean, and children survivors, right? And so thinking about that and thinking about the way that we 
look at sexual assault or view it through the lens of our culture and how it is, you know, more commonly seen as, or people often talk about it being female victimized, male perpetrated. There's so many reasons why a male survivor may not come forward and report it. Um, you know, just that mindset alone, and then a slew of other very valid reasons why they may not feel comfortable reporting. So as disheartening as like any of these, especially that male statistic is, I think it's also really important for the listeners to understand. It's really unfortunate, but they might not even capture the gravity of the issue, because we know there's a lot more victims and survivors out there that just may not have come forward. Absolutely. Yeah, all these statistics, you can keep that in mind that these are the reported, or at least people who mm-hmm. are willing to report it on a survey. You know, sometimes someone can experience sexual assault, and they are on some national survey asking about it. Right. A couple things there, they might not even recognize that they were a victim of sexual assault. You know, yeah. if they haven't been educated on what happened to them, they may not know. Or they may not want to even disclose to that anonymous piece of paper. So, yeah, we have to really think about underreporting. Another stat here from 2009 to 2013, Child Protective Services agencies substantiated or found strong evidence to indicate that 63,000 children a year were victims of sexual abuse. So that's not just the reports coming in. Those are substantiated or found strong evidence for 63,000 children. And here's our last one here. A majority of child victims are ages 12 to 17. Of the victims under the age of 18, 34% of those victims of sexual assault and rape are under the age of 12, and 66% of victims of sexual assault and rape are age 12 to 17. So... I know personally, I have a passion for educating as young as folks will let me Mm -hmm. (laughs) educate about (laughs) sexual assault. Um, Because like I said, it's something that may have happened to you and you didn't even know was classified as sexual assault. You thought it was something you deserved or was normal or insert excuse or reason here. So this is why prevention conversations regarding boundaries, consent, And developmentally appropriate conversations regarding good touch, bad touch, and keeping secrets. Um, What is a bad secret? What is a good secret? Mm -hmm. That's why all this is so important because there are children going through this. And so we need to make sure they are educated, their safe adults are educated, and really just everyone knows what is not okay here. Yeah. And I think, too, it's funny because when you said that, um, you know, I, I could educate as, as young as people will let me educate. I would love to do that. There's probably some people out there kind of like shaking in their boots and thinking, there's no way you're going to talk to a child about all this, right? And I mean, that's that's true and not true because no, we're not going to go into a kindergarten class or, you know, elementary school age children and, and talk about, you know, sexual assault in these ways. Again, there's very developmentally appropriate ways of talking about it. Like Brie mentioned, you know, just introducing the idea of good touch, bad touch. And at a certain age, you don't even have to talk about like private areas of the body. It's just more about like, you know, what's a good touch? It's a high five. It's something that makes you feel good and happy, like a hug when you want one from a friend. And then bad touch is anything that makes you feel uncomfortable, right? And then kind of setting that groundwork for if anyone ever touches you in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable, you know, like hits you, pulls your hair, so on and so forth, that's something to talk about with an adult, right? And of course, then you can start to correlate that a little bit later into different areas of the body and so on and so forth. But just wanted to mention that um, there there are ways 
of teaching these kind of things to, to children. That way, you know, they're not um, maybe getting into situations and things happen and they don't quite understand, like Brianna mentioned before. So I just wanted to put that out there. So we know, you know, obviously this is pervasive. Um, we have some really disheartening statistics for how common this is, but where does sexual assault occur? Who does this happen to? Well, Bri already mentioned that it's anybody, right? This is not just a female issue. This can happen to men. This can happen to children. And this really does occur and exist in any and all spaces, right, within our world, our society. And I, it's unfortunate to say that, but it's just important we talk about the, the truth of the matter, and it does occur everywhere. So with children, um, some just terminology here kind of coinciding with these things. Um, molestation is often the common term used for um, sexual assault on children, depending on the age, maybe, you know, leading towards young adult or teenager. Statutory rape is another common term that we hear for sexual assaults for people considered children or under 18. Uh, we also do have the term AMAC. So AMAC stands for adults molested as children. That's a common term that we use in the field. Uh, and this really comes out of the fact that there's a lot of children that may not disclose this until they come into adulthood. And maybe that's the time where they disclose something happened or recognize something happened. Again, there's so many reasons why they may not report as children. There could be fear, there's manipulation, they're told that this is a secret, that they could get in trouble. And quite often that child knows their perpetrator in some way, whether that may be a family member, a friend of a family member, someone that they look up to, like a coach or a mentor. And so that's why, I mean, and so many more reasons, but that's why sometimes children aren't reporting this till later. And that's where that term comes in. This also happens on college campuses. There's a really, really um, impactful documentary out there called The Hunting Ground. This was done to kind of capture um, the severity of the problem of sexual assault on campuses and how colleges kind of handle the issue. Uh, I'm going to have that linked below. I'm going to actually mention a few other documentaries throughout this. Just know all the trailers are linked below if you want to go check it out and see if it's something that you want to dive into and watch. But yeah, college campuses is a huge platform um, for sexual assaults to occur. We know there's a lot of partying, a lot of self-discovery, um, and we also know that there's a lot of alcohol, and alcohol is the number one date rape drug. And it's number one for a reason, right? Because it's not like you have to go out and buy something that's illegal or some illicit substance. It's, you know, bought very easily. If you're over 21, you can go pretty much anywhere and purchase it. It's self-administered, so you don't even have to go around slipping things into people's drinks. I can just be at a party and kind of watch the room and the level of intoxication. So there's just, yeah, a lot of space for that to occur on college campuses. This happens within our military, and that's kind of more of a hot topic right now because another documentary I'll mention, and it was really, really tough to watch, but it was fantastic, called I Am Vanessa Guillen, um, detailed this sexual assault uh, situation. I'm not going to give away a lot more. It does get a lot heavier than that, that happened in the military and how it was investigated. And one of the uh, silver linings of that occurring was Vanessa Guillen's family then went on to kind of march on Washington. And now there's new legislation put in place called Vanessa Guillen Act, where the military has to investigate sexual harassment, sexual assaults, and just deal with crimes um, within, you know, that military space a lot more efficiently. We know it also happens in prison. 
And this is a big reason why we've seen the PREA Act come into play, which is the Prison Rape Elimination Act. This happens between dating partners. So yeah, even if you're with someone, even if you're married to someone, it doesn't matter if there's a time and place where you are forced, coerced, manipulated into any kind of sexual contact. Yeah, we still consider that assault. It doesn't matter if there was consent at one point. The second that consent's not there and it's pushed past that, yeah, we still consider that sexual assault. And also it can occur between friends or casual dating partners. We often call that acquaintance rape. It can happen in families, also known as incest, and also with strangers, which I think a lot of people have the misconception that that's where and when and how this happens. It's like strangers, these like yucky people that are hiding out about town and, you know, kind of lurking in the shadows and waiting to come out and do these things. And I mean, that does happen. But statistically, I think it's the least likely thing to happen. Um, again, majority of the time, it's someone that you know. And I think breaking down that barrier of understanding is really, really, really important for listeners out there to kind of grasp the reality of how this happens and how this stuff occurs. So something else I just wanted to touch on as well, um, because we often hear both the terms rape and sexual assaults, and sometimes interchangeably. So if there's any confusion out there for anybody, like what's the difference? Why am I hearing both of these terms? Well, sexual assault, it's more of an umbrella term. It can include any form of unwanted sexual contact. So this can refer to molestation, this can refer to fondling, but it also does include rape under that umbrella. So just wanted to put that out there. Um, because I thought that was just an important distinction, clear up any confusion. And also the term sexual trauma is often used. It's based on clinical observations that some survivors may not label their experience as rape or assault, sometimes due to the familiarity with the perpetrator or the absence of force. So another good thing to keep in mind as you know, people may call this a different name when it comes to their experiences, um, but really it kind of all wraps around to be the same issue. So now we're going to jump into some of the short and long-term consequences or effects that can come from sexual assault victimization. And I'm going to start by saying that responses to sexual violence are extremely complex. They are very much person to person. Some survivors may experience severe and chronic symptoms, whereas others experience little to no distress. So the wide range of the impact it can have can be attributed to characteristics of the assaults, certain environmental conditions, survivor attributes or adaptability, and also social support and the resources that the survivor has access to. So I, I mentioned this in our episode talking about um, the short and long-term effects of teen dating violence, right? And same thing here. It's not to say that if you've been assaulted or if you know someone that's been assaulted, that they are going to experience some or all of these things, right? It really does depend on the person and the support they have and a list of other considerations. So starting off with some of the short-term consequences, and we're going to go into the consequences for children first, and then Bree's going to kind of share some of the short-term consequences for adults. But first and foremost, PTSD. So PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, you may also hear PTSS, which is post-traumatic stress syndrome. So for anyone that may be a little bit unfamiliar, um, symptoms can include persistent re-experiencing of the traumatic events, avoidance of stimuli associated with the event, 
numbing of general responsiveness and symptoms of increased arousal. So yeah, PTSD, it's, it's quite common. It's something that can show up pretty early on um, and lapse for a few months. Just again, depending on the person, it could extend further than that. Next, we have depression. Obviously, a lot of dark feelings can come from being victimized, right? And there's a lot of different situations where someone can be victimized and feel differently about it. Um, you know, it could feel very overwhelming. It could feel like you're very powerless. Or also, too, it could feel just very confusing, especially for a child going through that, right? And so trying to really get to the bottom of those feelings and get to the bottom of what's happening, um, yeah, it could be really difficult and can bring up a lot of really dark thoughts and feelings. Guilt and shame, another huge one, especially if this child is being told that this is their fault, or if they start to feel like they brought this on themselves, um, or they're doing something wrong and deserving of this. A lot of victims and survivors carry a heavy weight of guilt and shame. That's unfortunately not theirs to carry, but it's extremely common. Another side effect is maybe avoidance of people or places that remind them of that perpetrator or the place where they were victimized. So yeah, and this is a good thing to keep in mind too. Like this may come off as maybe some type of a red flag, but let's say awful scenario, but let's say a child is victimized while going to practice sports, right? And maybe it's by a coach. So maybe going forward, that child is really uncomfortable going to practice that sport. They're uncomfortable going to the field for that practice, or they don't want to be around somebody, even if it's not that same coach, but someone that reminds them of that person. That's a really, I think, important thing to pick up on if you see kids avoiding activities they used to love like that. Um, and it may not only mean that they've been victimized, but something just, I think, to have a conversation with that child about if you see them starting to kind of avoid things, people, and places. They may have a lack of trust for others, um, especially if that perpetrator, yeah, was someone close to them, kind of like I just mentioned. There could be thoughts of suicide or suicidal ideation. They could also experience nightmares or bedwetting. That's another common problem we see with children who've experienced any kind of trauma, not just sexual trauma. Going into young adulthood, we might see alcohol or drug problems and even eating disorders. And I've mentioned this a few times as well, but eating disorders can be really common for someone that's been through any kind of situation where they've had power and control taken away because sometimes that's like one of the easiest things that we can control, right? We can have power over. I can control exactly what I eat, what I don't eat, what goes in my body. And so eating disorders, unfortunately, become um, a coping skill for gaining that power and control back. And that's how we see that really correlated with especially sexual violence. Um, into young adulthood, they could have low sexual interest and relationship difficulties. So especially into teenage young adult years, um, you know, or if they were assaulted, maybe in their teenage years, this could really have some detrimental effects, right? Maybe it's, you know, given them some really confusing ideas of sex, what relationships are, and they may have a lot of problems with intimacy and getting closer to somebody. We could see some high risk sexual behaviors, which is another huge red flag, especially for children. If anyone out there like works with children, has children, if you notice that they kind of have an understanding of some sexual things that is really inappropriate for their age. Maybe you see them like acting things out or the way they're interacting with other kids. 
definitely take that as a huge red flag. Have a conversation like, where did you learn that? And, you know, just dive into that um, because that is something that we see kind of commonly is them kind of acting those things out or reacting in that way. And lastly, in really severe cases, sometimes victimization can lead to psychological conditions such as BPD, borderline personality disorder. We characterize that by enduring patterns of instability and impulsivity. And also disassociative identity disorder, which used to be known as multiple personality disorder. And DID is pretty common, especially in long-term victimization or really traumatic victimization for that person. Um, And this is also, unfortunately, a coping mechanism in a way, right? It's a psychological coping mechanism because someone can disassociate from the violent or traumatic instances they're having. They can place another altar in their place when there are times of abuse or when they're going through something difficult. It's a way that they can kind of check out of that situation. So that's something that also, it's not as common, but we do see that occurring. Moving into the uh, short-term consequences for adults. So a lot of the same things here, PTSD, also fear and that guilt and shame, Mm -hmm. especially when, you know, into adulthood, we can think, oh, I I shouldn't have been in that place. I, I shouldn't have worn that short skirt. I shouldn't have had that much alcohol at the bar. You know, Mm -hmm. I all of these excuses that we can make and we can try and reason out of it of like why it was our fault, but it's not. If you're a victim of sexual violence, it is not your fault. Uh, It is the person who assaulted you. That was the only person at fault. You did nothing to deserve that. Mm -hmm. And for adults, we also see that avoidance of people and places and you can work pretty hard to, get around, you know, not going to that place and coming up with these elaborate reasons why you can't do this certain thing because it reminds you of that. And maybe you're not ready to tell people the reason why you have to avoid that. You just have to for your, what feels like your own mental safety Mm -hmm. and physical safety. This can also include anxiety, shock, confusion, Especially if you're going through that cycle of feeling that guilt and that shame, that can be really confusing because you feel like you didn't do anything, but what if it would have been different if you did this and whatever they said during it that might have made you think that maybe it is okay, but I didn't want this, but they're saying it's okay. There's so many, I mean, sexual assault, it's an intimate thing that happens, right? Mm -hmm. And that's part of why it's not talked about so widely is because it is such an intimate act. And so when you add trauma into that, it can be confusing. So many mental gymnastics. Yeah, that's survivors exactly. go through. Exactly. There can be anger, you know, that goes along with that confusion and that guilt and shame, angry that this happened, angry that you're having to avoid these places um, and that you're having to deal with all these consequences and what is the perpetrator out doing living their lives yeah and that i mean that would make anyone angry that i'm the one who experienced this and i'm having to change my life in these ways and what are they doing Mm -hmm. Um, especially if they're not being held accountable in any way there can be feelings of withdrawing yourself from the feelings and trying to just move on just avoiding it 
I've definitely worked with some survivors who maybe I'm working with them on something else like domestic violence. And then we kind of talk about if they've experienced sexual assault or not. And they say, I did, but I just don't like to think about that and move on. Mm -hmm. It's something that they just kind of put in that box of that happened to me and it's too big to go through. So we're just going to lock it in that box and pretend it's not there, but uh, that can cause some some more consequences down the road if it's not addressed. Mm-hmm. A loss of self-esteem uh, that can absolutely happen. You know, you feel, I hate to say it, but I know some survivors have told me this, like you feel dirty, you know, you feel just violated. You were assaulted. You, there was something that happened to your body that you did not consent to. And so of course that could lend itself to feeling that loss of self-esteem. Feelings of powerlessness. So like Lisa was talking about with the eating disorder, they try to get that power back. That's because they're feeling like they lost that power. Someone did something to you that maybe you're feeling guilty that you didn't stop them or that you couldn't control it in the moment. You know, we have that, the fight, flight, or freeze Mm -hmm. that happens in these situations. And sometimes sexual assault happens in that freeze of you don't know what to do. And so you're too scared to fight back or to flee. And so we were there and it happened, but that was the best you could do in that moment. Um, And that's, that's not your fault that you didn't flee or you didn't fight. Right. Some adults may see some of these symptoms or effects reducing after a few months or so, but some may experience these for years to come. Uh, And this depends on what support they're receiving and just a slew of other factors uh, of what's going on, how long someone might be experiencing these effects. So moving into some of the long-term consequences, these could include, again, PTSD. That's something that can be experienced on the short term, but if it's left unaddressed, it could absolutely continue into the long term. Uh, Like Lisa mentioned, the eating disorders, um, sexual dysfunction. So that's something where you have the trauma surrounding the sexual act or sexual touch that was unwanted. And there's such the withdrawal and the mental block or the physical block from engaging in something like that, that it absolutely affects your sex life. Of course, it's going to. Um, And so that's what we mean by the sexual dysfunction there. Alcohol and illicit drug use. So even if it maybe was a part of how the assault was carried out, it might also be a coping mechanism for how you deal with all of these things that are coming up short and long term from the assault is that you try to numb it. And you find something that makes you feel like you're not thinking about it all the time. Sometimes that includes alcohol and other drugs. Suicidal behavior, suicidal threats. If this is something you've been dealing with for a long time in this long-term consequences, some people feel that they're they're just tired of it. Yeah. And that they don't think they they can do this anymore. And maybe they'll start saying that that I, I just can't do this, I can't deal with it. It's it's too much. And so it's really important to connect those people to Uh, Someone who knows how to address that immediately. If it's not you, if you haven't been through any kind of training like that, make sure you get them in touch with the the suicide prevention hotlines 
or a mental health provider or a hospital or the police, if it's getting to that point, make sure you connect them with those resources. And just so everyone knows, we do have the National Suicide Hotline in the description below if anyone wants access to that phone number. Long-term consequences can also include somatic issues, so within the body. And those are physical symptoms in the absence of medical conditions that would uh, explain why that issue is going on in the body. We know that trauma is stored in the body. Mm -hmm. We know that when infants who can't even understand their world yet, they are in a home with domestic violence or some kind of violence, that trauma is stored in their body because it affects how they grow and how they develop. Right. I heard about, I think it's like the crystals in your inner ear. If you've been through a lot of trauma, the crystals in your inner ear can actually shift. Hmm. And it can cause certain issues. There's a name for it. Maybe I'll look it up and see if we can link it uh, below. But it can happen from like a blunt blow to the head that these crystals can shift. Or it can happen from years of trauma that you've been undergoing and experiencing. Or a significant trauma that you did experience. And so I think the symptoms range along kind of like the vertigo feelings. I'm sure it contributes to hearing loss as well, but that's one example of physical things that can happen from not a physical thing to your head. You know, it can happen to your body somewhere um, and you can still have physical shifts that happen. It's really fascinating. I think the whole subject of storing trauma and just like Mm -hmm. a little semi-fun side note I just remember going to yoga the one time we were doing this like very deep hip stretch and I remember the teacher being like just watch out like things may come up for you we hold a lot of trauma sometimes in our hips and at the time this was like I was like a young teenager and I was like what are you talking about and then I got into that position and I literally started to cry like I I didn't know why I was crying I was not that kind of person that I wanted to like cry in public in front of people and it was the whole thing and of course like she came over and she like worked with me like in a very trauma-informed way and gave me my space and just validated me that that was okay and afterwards I was like oh my god she was right you know (laughs) like it's just it's really fascinating and if someone hasn't heard that before like trauma stored in the body like listeners out there might be thinking like what do you mean and where how are we storing it um but we're going to put some literature and research um and maybe find that whole crystals in your ear and trauma response there but i'll put some research below so you guys can check that out more as well yeah i love that you had a yoga teacher who talked about that because i think a lot of people skip over that part but that mm-hmm. is so important because yeah. it absolutely happens i personally store a lot of my physical tension in my neck And I know that. And so when I go to the chiropractor and I have a good neck adjustment, I kind of prepare myself for a release, a mental release after Mm -hmm. that, because it's that physical for me that I can feel like when I've been having a really stressful week and I go to the chiropractor, I know that something's going to be released there that I need to prepare myself for. Right. And thank God she did say that or else I would have been like, why did I just start crying during yoga? You know, I would have been, yeah. I would have been really confused why I just my body just started crying. Um, right. what seemed like uncontrollably. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's such an important thing to keep in mind. We can also see continuing anxiety. We know that that's something people can deal with for unfortunately, you know, their lifetime if it goes unaddressed. 
poor health. So that could go along with the somatic issues and storing trauma in the body or, you know, that lack of self-worth of you're just not taking care of your body like you would have because you're not feeling like you're worthy of taking care of a sense of helplessness, persistent fear. And so that could be assigning fear to places where it's not even the direct place that it happened or the direct person that it happened, but you just kind of gain this general sense of fear and distrust for those around you and for going out of the house in general. If it happened outside your house, if it happened in your house, then I hope that you'd have the resources and connect with an agency that would help you move. Um, Depression, like we've discussed, mood swings, sleep disturbances, you know, you can have those nightmares that come back and absolutely that's going to affect your sleep. And I know from being a mom of a a young child that sleep absolutely affects the rest of your day. Mm -hmm. And so that can affect everything else. If you're having trouble sleeping, that's not just a nighttime problem. That's a daytime problem as well. Flashbacks. And so that can go along with the PTSD, but really just feeling like you're reliving that situation. Sometimes the triggers for PTSD and flashbacks don't even make sense. Yeah. Um, it's not, you're like, why, why am I going through this right now? I didn't just see the place it happened. I didn't see the person that it happened from, mm-hmm. but I'm going through this flashback event. You never know what it might be from. It could be, I, I mean, it could be random. It could be that there's a scent associated. You never know what your body picked up in the moment yeah. when you were going through that assault that is stored and you don't consciously remember, but your body and that way back part of wherever that is currently stored in your brain does Mm -hmm. remember that. And that's where those are going to come from. Yeah. Your survival mode brain, it remembers. Mm -hmm. And sometimes things like that can absolutely sneak up on you. Absolutely. Disassociation. So that can go along with um, that DID uh, disorder that Lisa was talking about. So you are not fully engaged like you would have been before you disassociate as a way of coping. And a lot of these things that we're talking about are ways that our body copes and survives because you can't handle the just facing the truth of what happened every day. And so we we cover it up with anxiety and coping mechanisms and disassociation. Yeah. And important to mention too, that it's not just within DID that disassociation yeah, yeah, yeah. happens, yeah, yeah. right? Um, and just so the, the listeners are clear on that, like you can disassociate from a variety of different things in your life, obviously without having DID. And it's also sometimes common too for survivors to disassociate again without um, diagnosed DID during an assault, right? Just their way of kind of like escaping their body for a second. So just wanted to mm-hmm. put that out there. So Aiden, any cleanup of confusion. Yes, thank you. Also, panic attacks. uh, And that's something that can be addressed. I know for myself, it was addressed through yoga. So that's why I'm extra grateful that you had that yoga teacher, because it sounds like she would be able to help folks through Mm -hmm. uh, managing panic attacks. I chose to go to yoga before I ever went to therapy. And so that's where I initially learned. Yeah, (laughs) that's where I initially learned to listen to my body and to calm those panic attacks. But oh, man, that first panic attack. Whoo. Yeah. Yeah. And when they keep coming, it's, it's absolutely something that will affect your life. Mm-hmm. Phobias. So that goes along with the fear. You know, there's, there's so many things 
that your brain will do or even like make up to try and protect itself. And so you might have some what seems like maybe irrational fears, but it's your brain trying to figure out a way to protect itself because it went through something that is not okay. Relationship difficulties. Um, so that could be, you know, mistrust in relationships. Of course, we talked about the sexual dysfunction. And so if you're in a relationship where you're wanting to engage in a sex life, that will absolutely, a, a previous assault will absolutely affect your your future sex life if you haven't gone through and really processed and addressed the assault. Withdrawal and isolation, paranoia, and localized pain. So we can be physically hurt during an assault, of course. Right. It's not that you have to have an injury for it to be an assault whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I mean, just a side note, you know, when we do the CERT exams with victims, which is a, a sexual assault response team exam where they, you know, go and take pictures um, of what happened and try to see if there's any cuts or tears or anything. You can have injury from consensual sex and no injury from non-consensual sex. And so even though we do those SART exams, it's not that a tear will automatically mean something. I mean, you know, if you're coming in directly after a sexual assault, absolutely go get that documented. Um, But just putting that out there that it's such a sticky and tricky situation because, yeah, you, you can have pain and injury from consensual sex. But the localized pain, if you were injured during a sexual assault and it's something that you're not addressing, of course, that's going to continue to be an issue and something that will just continue to remind you over and over and over that that happened. So really important to address that. Um, there's risks of developing mental health problems, um, and these are related to assault severity, other negative life experiences, maladaptive beliefs, and perceptions of lack of control. So a lot of factors that can affect how severe these consequences are. Yeah, um, we can't stress that enough. Again, for anyone listening out there, you know, if you know someone who's been assaulted or if you have been assaulted, it's not to say that all these things you're going to experience. Um, it, it's very, very, very dependent on the person. And something I want to touch on as well, because I think another kind of interchangeable verbiage that sometimes we hear is victim and survivor. And there may be some confusion around that as well. So I think it also is kind of depending on the person, right? Because like Brie mentioned earlier, some people may not see themselves as victims. Even if they do come to a place where they've recognized like something happened and it wasn't okay, just for who they are and, you know, their belief of themselves and the world, they may not even want to adopt the term victim. They may want to just say like, I'm a survivor of this. So that's a big thing to think about. Um, Also, I think within our field, sometimes we look at those terms and not to say that like we like to kind of coin people, right? Either a victim or a survivor. But I think one way we look at it doing work with survivors is the fact that victimization and being a victim, usually we we kind of think about that in the stages where they're just going through the thick of it. Um, They're maybe really reeling, really hurting from that trauma that occurred. They're beginning to process that. um, And they may, may just be in a really 
negative space, right? Or just having a really hard time at first. But then once that healing journey begins and healing, my friends and listeners, is not always linear and does not look the same for everybody. But once they begin that healing journey, right, and they kind of get to a place where they're able to look past that in their lives, or they're not so focused on that, they're not having all of these different symptoms come out of it, they're not experiencing all these negative consequences, Uh, maybe they've gotten to a place where, you know, they've had this beautiful healing journey, they feel like now like, yeah, they can even like tell their story and, and assist other victims and survivors, right, and kind of do work that we've done. Sometimes we look at that aspect of it as survivorship, right. So again, there's no real rhyme or reason. I think that's another thing that's very personal for everybody, whether they say that I'm a victim of this or I'm a survivor of this, but just keep that in mind um, that that's sometimes the way that we kind of delineate that is like in the thick of it, victim, and then kind of in the healing process, survivor. So we are now going to talk about how we can support survivors. I think, as we always like to say, like, it's good that we kind of put out like all the bad things and things to look out for, but way more important to us that, you know, we get you to a place to recognize this issue in its reality but also have the resources to support someone that you know, or people in your community or whoever has gone through this. And I just want to make a quick shout out to Rain, an incredible sexual assault national resource. Um, These great tips were taken from their website, which is linked below. So you can check that out. So first and foremost, sometimes supporting a victim, it can look like getting them connected with resources helping them seek medical attention or contacting the police, right? Like you don't have to think that you have to be like the superhero that comes in and helps them fix this problem to move on, right? Um, It could really be us doing the most and being such an ally and a support by, yeah, saying like, I want to get you connected with somebody that could really help you with this. Like I might not be the right person, right? Not all of us are just trained advocates, um, you know, out there in situations where this could occur. And side note, and we just talked a little bit about, Brie mentioned um, sexual assault exams. And I just want to say we did a really comprehensive episode with a sexual assault exam nurse, and she's been in the field for decades. Brie, do you remember how long she's been working in the field? It was like a few decades. I don't remember how long, but in this whole like greater California, greater Nevada area that we're in, she has literally trained every sexual assault nurse examiner mm-hmm. that there is in this area. Yeah. <laughs> like the number that we call for an exam is her number and she might mm-hmm. send out one of her trainees or I mean, they're not trainees. It's people that she has trained who right. are now her effectively protégés. her mm-hmm. minions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it has started with her and she is just, yeah. it's an excellent episode. She is the absolute go-to expert. Yeah. You know, I should have done a little bit more homework um, and I should have re-listened to it. But I remember we asked her, like, how many exams have you done? It was like thousands. It was something so monumental and mind-blowing to me. Um, But regardless, so we did that episode with her. We went over some common questions about the exam, a little overview of like what the exam is like, but more so I think just kind of debunking a lot of questions people have about it. Like, you know, what's the time frame for this? All these things that some people may feel really uncomfortable asking, but it's really good information to know. So I'm going to have that episode linked below as well. So it's easier to find within our little library and a few others. So please check that out if you're interested. So let's say you are in a conversation with someone 
who has disclosed to you that they have been sexually assaulted in some way. Just remember that a majority of the time, you really just have to focus on listening without judgment or trying to give advice. Like that is such a good go-to, right? And I think that adds like a lot of security. And I think that's like a very calming thing to think about because again, you don't have to have the answers, especially if you don't have the answers, right? If you have not done this kind of work before or really looked into this, it's really about just being there with that person, not judging, just letting them talk about and, and share how much they want to share with you. That's really what it is. But here are some little kind of pro tips, um, you know, some things to say or things to reiterate if someone does disclose to you. So first off, one of the most powerful things that we can say is, I believe you. And it took a lot of courage to tell me about this because, yeah, it does, right? Victims and survivors, again, the mental gymnastics they go through is, it, it's unbelievable. And just last episode, we talked about Brene Brown, right? We talked about shame and vulnerability. But in talking about shame, we shared one of the quotes that she had that's very profound, saying that, you know, people don't like to talk about shame, or they don't like to admit to things that they're shameful of, right? Because in their mind, they think people won't be able to connect with me anymore if they knew this about me. And survivorship for a lot of people, when again, they're carrying that shame, that's not theirs to carry, but unfortunately, is a common byproduct of sexual violence. They may really feel that, right? Like, what if people did know this about me? Or what if they think about me differently, or they judge me, or they blame me? So yeah, the courage it takes to disclose is huge. And sometimes you think like, well, I'm really close with that person, it should feel really comfortable. Honestly, depending on the person, sometimes I feel like it's even harder to tell people that we know when we're close with things like that, right? It's almost like easier at that point to tell like a stranger, like a therapist you just met or an advocate you just walked into the agency and met for the first time, right? So it's so difficult for them to come forward and share that story because regardless, I mean, that's got to be a really hard story for them to tell, right? Or it may be a really hard story for them to tell. So just, you know, leave any why questions or investigations to the experts, right? Don't try to get them to dive into that, like why and what happened. If they don't want to share that, like, again, if you're not a trained advocate, like let let the trained ones do the work, right? Let's not re-traumatize them. Your job is simply just to support this person. And also, good thing to mention, like, be careful not to interpret calmness as a sign that the event didn't occur, right? So maybe you're listening and you're thinking like, well, they're having a really weird response. Like, they seem pretty calm about this, or they don't seem really affected by this. Did this really happen? Not everyone responds the same way. Another great series I'm going to mention, I'm just like sponsoring Netflix at this point in this episode, <laughs> but the series Unbelievable. I don't know if you've watched that. She's shaking her head. Yes. What a riveting and powerful and true story about a girl that was a victim of assault. And I'll just say not believed and then later proven to be believed. But it was all about her responses to it. And it's really, really fascinating to watch because, again, this is a true story. So just, you know, prepare yourself if you do want to watch that or just take care of yourself while you're watching it if you do. But yeah, I think that was really eye-opening, at least, you know, for me, even being in the in the field, it was really eye-opening to see that um, and think about like how responses, how they come off to people and then how they feel it's valid, right? Or they, you know, think that this really happened to that person. 
Yeah, and the way that people reacted when they found out that it did actually happen, I was just thinking back on it, and it gave oh. me chills, because it's one of those where you want to say, like, okay, I, I hope you remember that for people in the future who disclose to you. Yes. Remember how this feels right now, and just start by believing from the beginning. Yeah, I uh, I will never forget watching that for the first time. I was I was crying. I mean, through a lot of it, I was crying. Um but at the end, especially like when that that turnaround happens, it was just so emotional. But mm-hmm. one thing I will say, like, even for someone like us, that's been in the field, right? Like, I even found myself like, as I'm watching it, I could sit there and be like, okay, well, that's why she's doing this. Or that's why she's reacting this way. Or, you know, there's so many different things. Like, it was like, I had an understanding. But I could see how bizarre a lot of the things in the ways that she responded could seem to somebody else, right? Law enforcement or family and friends. And so really eye-opening. Um, I will, again, have that trailer linked down below if you want to go watch that series. It is very, very uh, tough to watch, but it is extremely insightful. The next kind of pro tip for conversations with a survivor is that it's not your fault. You did nothing to deserve this. That is absolutely the truth. Um, It does not matter what the circumstances were, what their relationship was with that person, what they wore, what party they went to, how much they drank. None of that matters, right? Uh, We have another episode about victim blaming. Have that link below as well. You can listen to more about that. But we know that survivors often blame themselves. So especially if they know this perpetrator personally as well, right? Like they may really start to think like, well, you know, I shouldn't have gone over their house. I shouldn't have, you know, let them do this for me or that for me. Just remind the survivor. And if you have to do it more than once, that's okay. That they're not to blame. If you hear that kind of coming up, well, my fault and I shouldn't have just remind them, right? You are not the one to blame. That is not your guilt to carry. Lisa, the other part of that Brene Brown quote that you shared about, um, you know, if I share this with somebody, I'll feel alone and they won't want to connect with me. That just made me think of this next uh, tip for having conversation that we have here, which is telling them you are not alone. Mm -hmm. Like we said in the statistics at the beginning, this is unfortunately so common. And you never know if someone you're sharing this with might actually have their own experience of sexual assault. And it's not that if you've experienced sexual assault, you know exactly what they went through because everybody is different. Every assault is different. Even if you've experienced maybe the the same form of assault or rape, it's not the same. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you can still let them know they're not alone. There's other people who have gone through similar experiences. And also you, they're talking to them, can say, I care about you, and I'm here to listen or help in any way I can, regardless of if you have experienced assault or not. That's absolutely something you can say is that you're there for them and you're willing to help them however you can. Let them know you're willing to listen to their story if they're comfortable sharing more of it. Assess if there are people in their life that they feel comfortable going to. 
um, telling other people and remind them that there are service providers who will be able to support them as they heal from the experience. So it's really important, even if you haven't experienced any kind of assault, that you are educated on resources because you never know when you might be the person that someone discloses to and you want to be able to send them to the right place. I'm sure we'll have all those resources linked below also. <laughs> this sure is going to be a long description, oh, y'all, yeah. <laughs> but it deserves it. Mm-hmm. You can also say, I'm sorry this happened. Or another version of that, this shouldn't have happened to you. Acknowledge that the experience has affected their life. Phrases like, this must be really tough for you. And I'm so glad you're sharing this with me. Help to communicate that empathy. So... <laughs> Again, we're just talking about Brene Brown forever. Okay, I was just going to say, yep. <laughs> with empathy. Her when you're saying that, yep. Mm-hmm. So again, with that empathy, if you can identify a, a spot within you that has felt violated or has felt really hurt by something, you know, you can kind of tap into that and you can say, ah, oh, this this is tough. This is really tough for you. I'm so glad you're sharing with me. I'm here for you. Lisa already mentioned this briefly, but make sure you avoid judgment because that's where those seeds of doubt and guilt and shame will really plant into that survivor. Uh, If there's any kind of judgment coming from you about any, any aspect of the story, it can be difficult to watch a survivor struggle with the effects of sexual assault for an extended period of time. Avoid phrases that suggest they're taking too long to recover, such as you've been acting like this for a while now. You know, if this happened years ago and they're just now telling you and kind of explaining why they've been the way they have been the past few years, not okay to say, yeah, I can tell. Like, you have been dealing with this. Well, I mean, it's okay to say I can tell you've been going through something. Mm -hmm. Um, But like I said, in a way that suggests they're taking too long to recover. Like you should have been over this by now. It was that long ago. Um, Things like that. Or how much longer are you going to feel this way? Mm -hmm. You know, those are not helpful in that situation. Not even a little bit. Like Lisa mentioned, healing is not linear. So if it seems like someone has had progress forward and then maybe some steps back, that's okay. And that's going to happen. And we don't expect them to gradually make two steps forward every day with no steps back that would be less common than what actually happens right if this person is choosing to share with you and you're offering to help and be there for them make sure that you check in periodically this event may have happened a long time ago but that doesn't mean that the pain is gone if they're sharing it it's something that they absolutely still experience in some way or another Check in with the survivor to remind them that you still care about their well-being and that you believe their story. Be that consistent person for them because that's likely why they went to you. They're looking for someone to be consistent and to believe them and to check in with them and see how they're going. I think, too, just something to touch on that's really important. And we talked a little bit about victim blaming already, right? We kind of lace that in. Other things that we can do, I think, just to kind of be allies and supports for individuals who have been through sexual violence, you know, is to kind of check ourselves, right? When it comes to victim blaming, victim blaming mentality or verbiage, right? But also things like normalization 
of sexual assaults. You know, our, our media puts out a lot of information. Sometimes it's done better. Sometimes I have a lot of critiques for how they especially talk about things like sexual assaults. Um, and, it, and it happens, I mean, not just like in the news, but also in social media and TV shows and all these kinds of things. So like having a conversation or being really aware of how some things are portrayed how they're spoken about, how some things are normalized, maybe how some behaviors are normalized, right? Maybe it's like within a friend group and there's some kind of like borderline, um, just inappropriate kind of boundary crossing things that happen or maybe things like inappropriate jokes, right? Like rape jokes and things of that nature. So important that we kind of and I don't say like call people out. I always like to say and reframe it. Don't call them out. Call them into a conversation with you about it. Like talk to them about what they're doing and saying and how it can be impactful and how it can be hurtful, right? Because the more that we just don't kind of allow this kind of culture where there is pervasive victim blaming, where victims and survivors feel like they're going to be discredited and not believed because the way we talk about it, you know, makes them feel like they're the problem or makes them feel like everyone just thinks that there's so many false reports going on and it's for this reason or that reason. Like the more we change the culture, the more we'll be able to support survivors. So I just wanted to mention that as well. Those are some like low threshold things we can think of and do. And it doesn't even have to be at a time where someone discloses something to you. It can just kind of be in our everyday lives, right? Just being more aware. And again, you know, having conversations where they need to be had. Thank you, Lisa, for those reminders that the victim blaming culture is all around us. And yeah, I myself have commented on some news stories, uh, letting them know that they are not uh, addressing this or right. uh, using the correct language around this. So once we're educated on this, then share it with other people and make mm -hmm. sure that we're just spreading the word of how we can support survivors here. All right. This has been definitely a heavy episode. Mm -hmm. Um you know, April and October are our largest awareness months, and they they can be hard. We have to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves as we go through them because yeah. sometimes we'll be doing an event and we'll be talking about sexual assault, and then we'll be working with a sexual assault survivor, and there's just so much more concentrated um, focus in April and October. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes if we just go through it, we can – not recognize that it's affecting us, but it's important that we take the time to really make sure that we are taking care of ourselves first so that we can take care of others. So with that being said, we are going to move into our meditation. I picked out a body love, body positivity meditation for today. So if you are in a space where you're ready to join us, go ahead and Settle into your chair or wherever you'd like to sit. Go ahead and close your eyes as you're settling into this comfortable position. Go ahead and bring your attention inward and feel the rise and fall of your belly and chest as you breathe in and out. How is your chest moving? How is your belly moving as you breathe in and out? 
If there's any pain or discomfort in your body, go ahead and take a moment to adjust yourself and then settle into deeper relaxation. If you feel your mind wandering or spinning with thoughts, just bring your attention back to your breath. Maybe even silently saying, breathe in when you breathe in and breathe out when you breathe out. Remind yourself that your body is wise and he or she is always communicating with you. All you have to do to unlock that wisdom is to listen. What is your body telling you? What does your body need? Just listen in silence for a bit here. If you've been feeling pain, what is your body telling you to do to relieve it? Maybe you're feeling too hungry or too full. What do you hear your body say? Maybe your muscles have been tense with stress or anxiety. How can your body help release it? Maybe you're exhausted and you crave sleep. How can you give your body what it needs? Maybe your body's been telling you that you feel scared or you feel unsafe. Recognize all the ways you're experiencing this in your body. Just listen to your body. What does it need right now? Take this time to listen. Now bring your hand to your heart. Become aware of the warmth from your touch. And silently say thank you to your body. When you have said thank you and you're ready to come back into the room, go ahead and start to wiggle the fingers and the toes, however you need to gently move to come back into the room. Take all the time you need. Pause this if you need to work through some of those questions again with your body. 
And just thank yourself again for, for giving that time to listen in. I feel like I just woke up from like a 12-hour sleep session. That was so relaxing. Your body needed re- relaxation. <laughs> when you were asking, you're like, listen to your body. I was like, I need sleep and food. And I was like, that's going to be the ultimate um, end cap mm-hmm. to that perfect relaxation session is some dinner and just some rest after this. But thank you so much, Brie. That was absolutely lovely. Appreciate you for leading that. And before I close out here, please, we'll just reiterate this again. Know that if you or someone you know is a victim of sexual violence, that you're not alone. There's nothing you did to deserve this. And that shame is not yours to carry. There's nothing you did to invite that on yourself. That is a choice that someone else made. Does not matter the circumstances. They chose to commit that crime, right? And you did not consent to it. There's also agencies around the entire country, agencies around the world. There's hotlines, there's websites that you can access with trained people who can support you in whatever healing journey you want to take with whatever method of, you know, going on to disclose this to others, to reporting this. Like there's just so much support for you out there. We're going to have kind of like directories below, like listings of different agencies in North America and then throughout the world. So please look into that if you're not in the United States and you want to see, you know, some agencies close by you can reach out to. You can take the path to healing whatever way feels best. And just know that no matter what, you deserve healing, you deserve a life with fulfillment, and you deserve to take care of yourself. So I appreciate my co-host Bree so much for being here. I appreciate all of the listeners for taking time to hear about this extremely difficult, but really, really important topic. Since awareness and prevention, we're always going to say it, they are absolutely crucial. So thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you'll join us for our next conversation.